0: The great churches of the New Testament are pretty much all gone. Right? We read about them. As we read about them, they come alive. We imagine their problems. We see their issues, their strengths. But they're all gone. Right? Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, Thessalonica, the churches of Revelation that are hard for me to say, They're all ruins at best, just like the cities that held them. And yet the church as a whole, the church as the body of Christ, as we have been discussing for the last few weeks, is larger and in the last century has grown faster than ever before. You may not realize that as you look at the American church in somewhat of decline and in crisis. But in the church around the world, it is on the move. So how is this possible? How can all the all the great churches we read about in the Bible be gone and yet the church is stronger than ever. In a word, multiplication. You see the church is not a building. it is not a place. It is not the intersection of two streets. It's not a point in time like Sunday morning or Wednesday night. The church is people right if the people of God, are equipped like we talked about last week. Then as the people move around, they take the church with them and they spread the church and they make disciples of all nations as they go. They become part of the great chain of disciples that reaches across nearly 2,000 years from a handful of people in Jerusalem to Lake Ridge, Virginia. As we continue our look at some of the adventures of the New Testament church, we come today to a brief instruction from Paul to his most trusted lieutenant, the man he trusted to fix the problems of the churches of his day. The advice that he gives is what enabled the early church to multiply, and it needs to be at the heart of all of our discipleship for adults and for youth and for children. Here at Lakeridge Baptist. And that advice is found in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Ha! The clicker works. It did not work in the first service. Paul writes to Timothy: You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Also, Second Timothy is Paul's final letter. As he writes to his beloved friend, Paul knows he's going to be dead soon. He knows he is going to be executed for his faith and for his ministry. His work has quite literally changed the world, but now his attention has naturally turned to what's going to happen to the spread of the gospel after his death. And Paul's advice reveals two truths that are crucial both to the advance of the gospel then in the absence of its most prolific apostle and are still valid today as the gospel needs to continue to spread. The first is that the church must multiply mature believers. Paul says in verse 2, What you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is describing here the full body of Christian doctrine, the great truths of our faith, and he is making the point that there are no secrets in Christianity. Unlike cults, both then and now, there are no secrets. It's all in here. And he says to Timothy, I have entrusted these things to you. I have taught you. Now you need to teach others who will in turn Teach yet others. And if you think about the scope of this brief sentence, it is breathtaking because he is literally describing four generations of Christians in one sentence. He speaks of himself, Timothy, whom he raised in the faith, those that Timothy will teach, and those that they will teach. And this, in a nutshell, is multiplication. This is that chain of believers that reaches across oceans and across centuries from Jerusalem to 21st century Virginia. And now it is our turn and our responsibility to build the chain, to multiply ourselves, to be a church that multiplies mature believers. Last week we looked at Ephesians 4 and we described the equipping that we must be doing here, right? We talked about four areas: training believers in unity of the faith, knowledge of Christ, doctrinal soundness, and Christ likeness. And I think that youth Sunday is a perfect time for us to highlight and be encouraged by the equipping that is taking place here and to be challenged to take that equipping to a higher level. What I have to say here applies equally to adults, children, and youth, but I will use the opportunity of Youth Sunday to put a little bit of a a youth focus on it, but don't think that my lessons apply only to the youth here. We see there are two elements to multiplying mature believers. We can see it in Paul's words, right? First, Timothy has to raise up those who are going to teach, and then they have to teach. So first, we must be equipping leaders to teach our youth. This past year has been a challenging one for all of our discipleship programs, but most particularly our youth here at Lakeridge. But the youth themselves have been marvelous and resilient and have rolled with it. And God has been faithful in raising up new leaders, some excellent youth leaders who who are digging deep into the word of God with these students on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. We have been working to equip in these four dimensions that Paul described. We have been revamping curriculum. We have brought in additional leaders. We are focusing on doing solid equipping in these four areas, sometimes even at the expense of some of the flashier elements of traditional youth ministry. But I am on, I think, safe ground to say that we could always use some additional leaders and helpers. And so I would encourage you to be in prayer about ways to support the equipping of our youth and our children. Last week, we talked about finding your place, doing your part in the body of Christ. That which God has uniquely called and prepared for you to do. You've seen a glimpse this morning of how God is is working through the youth and how they are beginning to explore what their calling is, where their place is in the body of Christ. And so if you have not yet found your place in the body, if you don't know what your part is, then, then be in prayer about that larger question as we discussed last week. But consider, is youth an area that you may be being called to? Now, I originally got involved back in January with the youth. Before that, I sort of focused on working with adults. I got involved to fill a gap on teaching on Wednesday nights. And I can tell you that first-hand experience. This is a great place to get involved, right? Because these kids are terrific, right? The idea of working with youth on a Wednesday night can seem kind of terrifying. It's midweek, right? People can be squirrely. But they're terrific, right? We have these awesome discussions about all kinds of things. I mean, they come and they, I mean, I don't want to intimidate you, but it's I'm getting bombarded with theological questions all the time, right? But they're, they're not just trivia questions. They're questions that impact their life, right? And I'm, I'm grateful for those who are there working with all the youth to back me up. So when I say something wrong, it, you know, it's good. Um, that's what teamwork is about, right? Um, so these kids are terrific, right? And the, and the ministry is really and truly right at the heart of this command to teach the next generation of Christian men and women, right? It is at the heart of godly multiplication. And so, like any ministry, when you are in the heart of God's will, it's an exciting place to be. But it's not enough just to raise up the leaders and equip the leaders, right? We have a purpose here. We must be equipping the youth to be those faithful men and women who will then be teaching others as they go about their life. And so certainly that begins with coming to faith, but there is far more to it than that, right? They have to be equipped in those four ways that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. So in the months that I've been there working on Wednesday nights, we have been wrestling with some of the great truths of the faith. We have been looking directly at the unity of the faith directly at the knowledge of Christ, directly at the soundness and stability of doctrine, why we believe what we believe, what we believe, and how that relates to the other world views out there, how to hold up in the face of hostility. It is our intent and our prayer that this is helping them to understand the urgency of sharing their faith with others, that contrary to the cultural norm, it's not all good and let everyone do their own thing because there are consequences to that. And that we're giving them the confidence to do this, to engage in this way, to feel that they have nothing to fear and nothing to hide in their faith. And I think you've seen some of that this morning. And Whether we're talking about youth or whether we are talking about adults, I would pray that each of us here is getting increasingly equipped in this same way and with this same urgency to apply and share our faith as we go. But it's important to put this in perspective and to realize that as we are equipped and as we are equipping our our youth, as we are equipping children in ministry, that it's not enough just to teach them facts. It's not enough to just build up big, giant theology brains. And that's a real temptation for sort of conservative-leaning evangelical Christians in modern America. It is easy to do that. We live in a time with unprecedented access to historical background information, theological information, interpretations of the Bible, commentaries. We have a luxury of resources that is both a blessing and a potential temptation to just say, well, I need a little bit more knowledge before I get started. But the problem is that knowledge alone does not spur us to action. It will not cause us to mature, uh, multiply mature believers. Because mere knowledge and doctrine will often collapse in the face of real opposition, real hardship in life. That's why Paul tells us in verse 1 that we need to build everything on a foundation of Grace. That we be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Missed a click, there we go. All our power, all our ability to persevere in the face of challenges. All our lasting strength, whether we are a youth, whether we are a senior, or whether we are somewhere in between. It all comes from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this is not something that we can just load up on once and recover for the rest of our lives. Right? Salvation is that way. We load up on salvation once we're saved. But this grace that gives us strength is not a one time deal. Paul's wording in this chapter, or in this verse rather, suggests that a more accurate rendering into the English would be be continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I will not bore you with the grammatical details. But he is really speaking to an ongoing process. right? What Nathan referred to as the renewing of the mind, which is also an ongoing process. That we need to daily refresh ourselves from the fountain of living water. We need to daily refresh ourselves from the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, we need to meditate on and reflect on the fact that our Lord, who existed for all eternity, through whom everything in the universe was created, right, who holds together everything, even now, chose to become a human being, chose to become a baby in Israel nearly 2,000 years ago. And why is that? Because we have a problem. We have a big problem. We have all sinned. And when we sinned, we separated ourselves from God. We put ourselves in a mess that we could never get ourselves out of. A permanent, from our perspective, separation because God is perfect, God is holy, God is just, God is righteous. His standard is perfection, and when we sinned, we failed. We're not perfect. God can have nothing to do with a despicable sinner like me. And yet, the God of the universe, the God who created the galaxies and the stars and the planets, who breathed life into the dust and made man, loves me so much and loves you so much that he sent his eternal son to become a human being, to suffer and to die horribly on a cross as a blood sacrifice to make our sin problem go away, to wash away the sin of all those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when Christ rose from the dead and demonstrated his victory over sin and death, he made it clear that everything he ever said was true. That he had solved our sin problem forever without us ever lifting a finger. Well, that's grace. That is undeserved, unearned, and at the risk of making up a word, I will say actively de-earned through our behavior. That's the grace that is marvelous and sustaining, that is amazing and strengthening. That's the grace that Paul commands Timothy and us to rely on continually for strengthening. That's why I speak of it so often on Sunday mornings. Because we are supposed to be continually Drawing nourishment and strength from it. And because I can't get enough of it. I like talking about it because it reminds me of it. I hope you like hearing about it. Because I'm pretty sure we're supposed to talk about it a lot. It's why I remind the youth of it as often as possible on Wednesday nights. Because it is amazing and yet we need to be continually reminded of it and, and strengthened by it. And the cool part is, from my perspective... I can't read minds, but I see a difference, right? I think the youth know it's amazing. Because nothing gets a group of boys on a Wednesday night focused. Like when we start switching topics and talk about the grace and the good news of the gospel of Christ. I think they instinctively know that Christ's grace is the answer in an increasingly dark and negative and discouraging world. That is directly attacking them every day about their self image, their self worth, their purpose, their meaning, and their future. But Christ's grace is power against all of that. It is the power of God's very personal love for you and for me that is made extremely apparent through the sacrifice of His beloved Son on the cross. The second truth of this passage is that the church must multiply itself. Paul tells Timothy to leave Ephesus. Ephesus is a major city. This is a critical ministry. And Ephesus is an interesting church because it shows up all the way from Acts. We see it in the pastorals. We see it show up in Revelation. It, It has highs. It has lows. It's got good moments as a church where things are going great. It goes into decline. It needs renewal. You kind of see the whole life cycle of a church in the course of the New Testament if you pick up carefully on on where it is. There's still plenty of work to do, but Paul tells Timothy, your work is done when you have passed on the truths to the next generation of leaders. Now, some of those leaders are going to stay there. They're going to build that church up. They're going to fight the heresy that is within their church. But some of those leaders and the people that they teach will inevitably move on. They will go and spread the church. And it is this moving, sometimes intentional, sometimes accidental, sometimes voluntary, sometimes forced, that enabled the church to survive and thrive even as those individual churches vanished one by one. Right? That's what made the chain. Sending out mature believers is simply the next turn of the Great Commission. I like to think of it as kind of a little bit of a wheel, right? We, we go, we baptize, we teach, they go, they baptize, they teach. doesn't mean we stop, we keep going. But that's how we multiply. Now our youth are naturally going to go. That is... Part of coming of age in modern America, if I've given you bad news as a parent, just trust that I'm struggling with it too, that that day will come. They will naturally go, because in America, whether it's for college or for career, whether it's because they have to or because they want to, they will leave, they will go. The good news is that if we have done our job as a church, if we have equipped them then with God's strength and through the grace of Christ Jesus, then they won't just go. They will go and make disciples of all nations. But I don't think our notion of multiplying ourselves can just stop with the beneficial side effect of our teenagers leaving. I think it has to be more intentional than that. I would argue that the example of the New Testament church is that our church needs to be preparing people preparing pastors preparing leaders preparing members to intentionally leave and start new churches that our church needs to be multiplying intentionally i've mentioned in the past that the world has a math problem right i won't get into heavy math here but in a generous being as generous as you can be there are about 2 billion people that in some form or fashion claim the name of Jesus Christ. There are 5 billion who absolutely do not. You're not going to bridge a gap from 2 billion to 7 billion total through addition. right? If every church in the world added 10%, it'd be a miracle, but it would nowhere near bridge the gap. Addition is not the solution. Only multiplication solves the problem. Lest you think I'm off the mark here, realize that only multiplication took it from 12 apostles and a handful of disciples to 2 billion in a little under 2,000 years. As a percentage, the bulk of the work's already been done. See, I did a lot of math, so I can, I can tell all kinds of stories with math. I did a lot, of, a lot of college math. Faithful churches need to be intentionally equipping leaders and members who are willing to multiply. That is our history. That's how we got here in the first place, back in the 70s. At least as I understand it, I was not here. It's how we will live on long after this building and this place are gone. How we will live on as part of Christ's universal church. And I know the time is not right just yet for us to be a multiplying church, right? We've got some stuff we need to work through. But I wanted to plant this seed of an idea now, to get it hovering in the back of your mind, to realize that while now may not be the time, at the other hand, you do not have to be a perfect church to be a multiplying church. A perfect church is a myth, this side of heaven. We will talk about the perfect church in a few weeks, but it's not on this side of heaven. We don't have to have all our stuff together. We don't have to be fully staffed. We don't have to be packed in the aisles every Sunday morning. We just have to be strengthened by the grace of Christ Jesus, as Paul commanded. I could talk a lot more about planting churches, but I will not. Right? I'm going to stop. My purpose is not to persuade anyone this morning, but rather to plant the seed of an idea that says that multiplication is more than just training up leaders and members and hoping that as they leave the church, they do some good in the world. That it is about intentionally planting daughter churches in the name and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. At all levels, Paul's imperative to multiply is clear and it resounds across the ages precisely because it is what has empowered the church to survive and thrive and grow across the ages. We are here because of multiplication. So for each person this morning, the question is, what is your role in helping to multiply mature believers or to multiply the church itself? Where are you on the continuum of development that Paul describes to Timothy? Do you need to be entrusted with the truths of the faith? If so, you're in the right place, and we ask you to get involved in that. Or are you at a point where you need to be finding faithful men and women and entrusting those truths to them? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand in gratitude for the great chain of multiplication that has led from a handful of people back in Jerusalem to a church spread around the world, and specifically for us here in Lake Baptist Church. Lord, help us to take up the mantle of responsibility, the challenge that Paul laid out. Help us to be faithful in equipping the next generation so that they will equip the generation after them. Help us to be a church that is not just accidental, but intentional about multiplying the believers and the church itself in your name and to the glory of your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.